Well, good morning, everyone. And I'm so glad each one of you are here. And uh, we're going to be uh, deviating a little bit from our normal systematic expositional preaching. That means we go right through the Bible. And uh, we're going to be doing um, a very significant topic today. And my assignment for the first service is why Jesus had to come the first time. And then Pastor Frank Jr.'s assignment is why Jesus has to come again. And so we'll be covering both through this, so I'm really looking forward to it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, thanking you for all that you've done. You so loved the, the world, you loved us, that you gave your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that gift is the most significant gift that this world has ever received. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that during this time of year when everyone is thinking of your first advent, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and use us to minister to others that they might be saved. Help us, Lord, for this short period of time through this season to take our focus and minds off of ourselves and put it on you and serving you. And Father, I ask and pray for your anointing that the words I speak would truly be of the Spirit and not my own. Humble me in your presence, Lord. And speak through me, I ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Now, this might seem like an unusual introduction, but I think uh, as we continue on, you'll understand why I'm starting this way. There was a a video that someone asked Frank and I to watch, and it's called The Betashit Prophecy. You know, the very... um, First verse in the Bible, in the Hebrew, is Beta Betashi Elohim Hashemayin of Itzelovitz. And it means, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But it's interesting, the very first word of the Bible is in beginning. Hebrew doesn't have a lot of conjunctions, so it's not in the, but it's in beginning. For us, it would be in the beginning. And it's so interesting, because Scripture tells us that He, God, will declare the end from what? The beginning. And the very first word of the Bible is beginning. And the Hebrew alphabet, which is made up of uh, 22 uh, letters, but they're also symbols. They're pictographs. They're 22 pictographs as well. So there's a lot more meaning to it than first meets the eye. And so as you study, in fact, if you look this uh, video up, the Bedeshit Prophecy, it's going to blow your mind. But the reality is, that every one of those letters is a prophecy in the beginning. From the beginning, he'll declare the end. From the beginning. So in that prophecy, in that word, beginning, in the Hebrew letters, it declares why Christ had to come. It declares he's coming from heaven at his first coming. It declares and prophesies his crucifixion and resurrection. It prophesies the rapture and his second coming, all in the first letter. Of the, um, of the Bible in the Hebrew, Bereshit. So I really encourage you to look that up. And he has a lot, of, uh, a lot of things like that. And so one of the things we're going to be looking at today is how God so fulfills all prophecy. Now, we celebrate Christmas, the coming of Christ, on the 25th of December, and that's fine. That's what the whole world does. That's our opportunity to be able to share Christ with the lost. But all of us who are Bible students know that Christ was actually born in March. 
And because the shepherds, that's when they're out abiding in the fields. And you notice that verse is keeping watch over their sheep by night. Why do they keep watch over their sheep in March? That's when the new lambs are born. With sheep, they're only born one time a year. It's when all the new lambs are born. They're born in March. And Jesus was born then the Lamb of God. To me, that is so significant. And also, we know Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem. And he was born in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem is where the sheep were born that were used for slaughter for sin in the temple. You think that's just coincidence? I think not. And just so many other fulfillment of prophecies, you know, with, with Jesus Christ. I mean, just the, well, when Jesus came into Jerusalem before he was crucified, and everyone was yelling, Hosanna, you know, and so forth. Because that day was the day that they started watching the lambs that were going to be slaughtered for Passover for four days. And Jesus came in four days before his crucifixion so that he could be observed. And remember, he presented himself in the temple so all could observe him. And then he was crucified, <clears throat> not on Passover, as many people think. It was the day before Passover. If you study the scriptures, you'll see very plainly in John that that's the case. But he was crucified on the day that all the lambs in Israel were slaughtered for the remission of sin. Isn't that amazing? Then he arose from, dead, from the dead on the Jewish holiday of first fruits. First fruit from the dead, scripture tells us. We're going to be second fruit from the dead. And then he ascended into heaven on Pentecost. Many people think that's just a Christian holiday. It's a Jewish holiday, meaning 50. And on Pentecost is when he, um, or actually it wasn't on Pentecost. And Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit came to us and fulfillment of prophecy. And so every Jewish holiday has, you can find all this online. It's easy to find. Every Jewish holiday is significant in relationship to Christ. And there's one last time for Christ to fulfill. Well, actually, there's two. There's the Feast of Trumpets. And the last trump, dead in Christ, will rise first. And we who are left still alive shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. That's called the rapture, taken from the Latin word raptos, which means to be caught up. And there's one more. Feast of Tabernacles. And that's when we come back with Jesus and he tabernacles or lives among us for a thousand years. The Bible's amazing. And if you really study it, and, and there's so many tools that we can find easily, I, I, I really encourage you to do it. And I'm sharing that because in my presentation of why Jesus came the first time, there's a lot of meaning in the Hebrew in relationship to our understanding of Scripture and the coming of Christ. Now, we're going, to, we're going to find that concerning Christ's appearance, it was then, and when he comes again, will also be based on his love for his special creation. So many people say, and they think, well, Christ came in order to forgive sin. No, Christ came out of love. If he didn't love us, he could care less about our sin and our state. Christ came for no other reason than love, and his love drove him to come because of our sin, that we might be forgiven. It's absolutely amazing. And um, 
So Jesus, understand, came for one reason, agapeos. He came for unconditional love for you and I. You know what unconditional love means? It means, makes no difference what you've done in your past. makes no difference what mistakes you've made right now. His agapeos love is unconditional. And if you have the Lord Jesus Christ, all you have to do is confess your sin. And he forgives you and purifies you from all unrighteousness. And the amazing thing is that confession of sin doesn't mean we have to go to someone. It doesn't mean that we have to specifically get on our our knees around our bed. Confession of sin can be when you do something you know you shouldn't do and you feel guilty about it. Oh, God, forgive me. It's confession. So anyway, we find that the reason that God had to come out of his love was to bring man back into relationship with him because he was separated by sin. And we find this in Genesis. If you want to turn to Genesis chapter 3, we're going to read a large portion here, and I'll give a little commentary on it as we're going through it. Genesis chapter 3 and go to verse 8. And this is when... Adam and Eve were still in the Garden of Eden. They tended the garden and ate of all the fruit of the, of the garden that, and, 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 you know, that God had provided for them. And God used to come every evening in the cool of the day and meet with Adam and Eve and have intimate fellowship with them. So we pick up in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which was his normal time to come and meet with them. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam, and he said to him, Where are you? Well, he's God. He, it wasn't hide and seek. He wasn't talking about their physical location. He knew where they were. When he said, Where are you? He was talking about their spiritual location. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like, I mean, sometimes you and I might say to someone, What are you doing? We know exactly what they're doing, but our question is, why are you doing that? You know what I mean? What are you doing? And so it's the same thing when God says, Adam, where are you? He knew where he was, but he's talking about, what have you done? Where are you spiritually? And um, verse 10, so he said, Adam, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? What was God saying? Man's innocence was gone. And God knew it. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman (laughs) whom you gave uh, to me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Well, here we see that Adam is not taking responsibility for his sin, which is required for us to come to true repentance. We have to take responsibility for our sin. And look at who he was blaming. He was blaming Eve, but who was he really blaming? God. The woman whom you gave me. The woman whom you gave me, God, that's what caused me to fall. And then in verse 13, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So even Eve was refusing to accept responsibility as well and blaming someone else. He was blaming Satan. Now, Satan is the one who tempted her, but she's the one who ate and then gave it to her husband. 
You understand what I'm saying? Satan can tempt, but sin we commit by falling to that temptation. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I, Now, one of the things that we think, you know, there's probably more to it than, than I know, is that the serpent at one time was probably one of the most beautiful of God's creation besides man. And that is the being, the serpent, is what Satan embodied you know, possessed in order to tempt Eve. But then after the fall, the serpent apparently was taken to the lowliest position. And uh, I don't think there's anything that probably, at least for Pastor Frank and I, causes more fear in our heart than to see a snake. And uh, they're, they're just snakes. You know, they slither around and a lot of them are poisonous. Verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking about Satan, and between your seed and her seed. This is the first prophecy of the virgin birth, because a woman doesn't have the seed. So this is a prophecy that she would have a seed within her that was not of man. Your seed. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, God's going to crush Satan. But before that happens, Satan's going to bruise his heel. And this is the first prophecy of the suffering Messiah. You see how much there is in Scripture? If you really take time to study. Verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrows and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. And so when any of you ladies are in labor, uh, blame Eve. Because the discomfort you're feeling is all her fault rather than your husband. Why did you do this? You know. Anyway, um, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. There are many people that think that before the fall, the woman was the domineering person. I mean, she's the one who was tempted. She's the one who gave her husband to eat. There's no indication that he, you know, was... So after that, because of her sin, not only would she have increased pain in childbirth, but now she had to submit to her husband, as we find the Old Testament brings out as well. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. And so when you are weeding your garden, it, it's, the, it's the fall's fault, really. I mean, you wouldn't have weeds and thorns. It's all because of the fall. Verse 19, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Talking about the physical body. And you think about it, God intended for man to work hard by the sweat of his brow to earn a living for his family. Verse 20, and Adam called his wife Eve because she was mother of all living. Also, for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. This was the first blood sacrifice to cover sin. Verse 22, then the Lord said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good from evil. Man now held responsibility for sin because now he knows good from evil. And now, 
lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. God did not want man to live forever, forever in a state of sin where he would be out of fellowship. God wanted to have fellowship with man. And so that's the reason he did not want him to eat of the tree of life, because redemption was coming. Verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man. God drove him out. And he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so apparently Adam and Eve being so close to the fall probably knew the way back to the garden. But God put that flaming sword so they couldn't enter back in because of their sin. Sin brought spiritual death and the result of spiritual death is physical death. The day you eat of that tree, you shall die. And the day they ate of that tree, they died spiritually. And because of their spiritual death, physical death came to all of mankind. But the wonderful thing is, with Jesus Christ, he allows us to have a second birth, to be born again, which leads to eternal life. God is so good. And then, if you study Genesis, how interesting and sad the very next event that we read about after they're cast out of the garden is Cain killing his brother Abel. The horror of sin has not changed. The horror of sin we see all around us in wars and famine and pestilence, people hating one another, it hasn't changed. And that's, to me, that's so interesting that after they're cast out of the garden, the very first incident, you know, they have Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve do, but the very first incident that is recorded is Cain killing his brother. To me, that's horrible and it's amazing. How wonderful and how fantastic that our omniscient God knew beforehand man would fall and he provided the sacrifice even before creation. In Revelation 13.8 it says, The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And uh, from, in the Greek there, is apo, which ap ap actually should be translated before. So before the foundation of the world, God, you know, Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So even before God created, he'd already provided a sacrifice because God knowing all, he knew man would fall. What do you call that love? What love God has for us. Now, because of man's pride, which is what led to fall, the fall to begin with, God in his love for his special creation first had to show man his need. You know why God has to show us our need? Because we're so prideful. I don't need anybody. I can do it myself. And, of course, that's what happened. In Exodus chapter 19, in verses 7 through 8, so Moses came and he called to the elders of the people, and he laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded them. Then all the people answered together, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and that day they rebelled. That's the heart of man. Just tell us what to do. I can do it. No, we can't. We can't do it. We can't stay obedient for one day. Probably for most of us, not for one hour or one minute. 
And that's why we need the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And for this reason, right from the beginning, God had to make provision for sin, a blood sacrifice. And so, right in the, you know, the law was saying, you know, for instance, like the Ten Commandments, how man had to live in order to be in right relationship with God. Man couldn't do it. So right after that, God provided blood sacrifice that could be offered for the covering of sin. Well, the thing is, the Lord has provided the ultimate blood sacrifice for sin, and that's Jesus Christ. You have to understand that when Jesus hung on that cross, you probably have heard the song, uh, that it wasn't the nails that held him there. It was his love. Jesus was and is God. If he wanted to, just like by his word he created the entire universe, he could have just said, it's done. And he could have dissolved everyone or all those that were crucifying him. But he didn't. Because in order to redeem man back to God, in order to pay the penalty for sin, he had to die. Do you understand he didn't have to? I mean, literally, he didn't have to. He could come down anytime he wanted to. And he could have done anything he wanted to. But what he desired to do was to hang there and die because it was the only way that the sacrifice could be made for the continuous propitiatory sin of man. It's amazing. You know, in um, John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we love this verse, all of us do. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That kind of love is beyond our ability, isn't it, to understand? I mean... We love people, we love our children, but they do things that make us mad. We like to pound them in the head. Not really, not literally, but you understand what I mean. But God's love is just so beautifully, covers everything, all of our sin, all of our shortcomings. That's the love God has for us. Now, I find it interesting that when God announced the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, into the world, into Bethlehem, where the lambs were born at that time of year, and in Bethlehem the lambs were born that were going to be slaughtered at the temple for the sacrifice of the people, Jesus was born. And it's interesting because the first ones he came to, the first announcement of the coming of Jesus Christ was not to the wealthiest in Jerusalem or in Israel, was not to the religious leaders, but was to shepherds. Now you have to understand Shepherds were a rough, lowly crowd of people. They were considered so low in Israeli society, they were not even allowed to testify in court. Their testimony didn't, didn't count. They were like the dredges of society, in a sense. That's who God first announced the coming of Jesus Christ. And we find this in Luke chapter 2, if you want to turn there, in verse 8. We're starting. Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. And there's something very significant in this annunciation that I want to point out to you. Luke chapter 2 and go to verse 8. <clears throat> now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. That's when the lambs were born. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord surround, uh, shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. I would be too. 
You're out in the field, laying around at night, looking at the stars, and all of a sudden, ding! You know, whoa! Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for all people, which shall be for all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloth, clothes, lying in a manger. Now, what I want to point your attention to is verse 11. For there is born to you. That's interesting. It does not say um, born to, you know, to Mary and David or Mary and Joseph, or it doesn't say born of the house of David. It says born to you, which is a possessive personal pronoun. You know what that means? We are told that this babe was born for them personally and for you and I personally. Now, Christ's first advent, his birth, was because of his love for you and I personally. It's a personal possessive pronoun. Born unto you, you, you and you, is Christ the Lord. How amazing. Oh, he came to set the captives free, and because he died, we live. Because he came to us, we can go to him. Isn't that amazing? In Galatians chapter uh, 2, and I'm going to read verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Wow. The greatest gift any man, and when I say man, I mean mankind, man or woman, the greatest gift any man can receive is the gift of Christ. If you have the Lord, you have everything. If you don't have the Lord, you have nothing. You know the old euphemism, you can't take it with you? You can't even, you won't even be thinking about taking anything with you. People who aren't saved aren't going to be in hell. Oh boy, I wish I had my car here. They're not going to care about anything except the fact that they're separated from all, for all eternity from their Savior, separated from his love, they're separated from his life, from his peace, from his comfort. But those of us who are born again we shall never be separated from the Lord. There'll never be one instant, one moment, that you're out of relationship with God. When we die physically, we're instantly with him. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's never going to be a blank, blank period of time from when you die and you're with the Lord. It's instantaneous. You won't even realize it. And so the greatest gift any man can receive is Jesus Christ. I love what it tells us in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 12. Everyone should write this. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Pretty simple. You know, people say, where does it tell you in the Bible you have to be born again and have Jesus Christ? Well, right there. If you have the Son, you have life, eternal life. If you don't have the Son, you don't. It's that simple. You know, we try to make things complicated, and it's not. You see, physical life comes when we are born of our mothers. Spiritual life comes when we're born again of the Spirit. Physical life always leads to physical death. Spiritual life always leads to eternal life. 
That's the promises that we have. And that's the reason we always have to ask ourselves and ask anyone we know who doesn't know Jesus, you need to be born again. You know, so many people like to think of Christianity in this book as being the religion of dummies, being the religion of the people who are insecure, being the religion of people who really don't know science. Well, the word science just comes from knowledge. That's what the root word of science is. Well, guess what? There's no greater knowledge than Jesus Christ. I mean, when you take the first word of the Bible, Bereshit, in beginning, and you have the whole account, he tells us right from the beginning, he tells us, uh, you know, what the end is going to be like. That's pretty amazing. In one word, it's all there. This is the most amazing book you'll ever read. And I'll tell you what, if there's any book you should be pouring through, it's this one. And I think all of us, every one of us, including myself, we get convicted. Have you ever gone to bed and wished you would have spent more time in the Word today? Well, guess what? You were born again to salvation. This is a new beginning, too. Maybe today is the day that we're going to be more excited about studying His Word. Father, thank you for your word and all that it means to us and the encouragement that we have through it. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless it to our understanding. And Father, as we take time to share communion together, I ask, Lord, that you would also um, use it to minister to us and to draw us closer to you, that we would recognize all that you've done for us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. I think it's um, wonderful that Communion is falling on this Sunday before uh, Christmas, which is the day we celebrate his, his birth. Because when we share communion, Jesus is saying that when you eat of this you know, bread and of this cup, you're proclaiming his death and resurrection. And that's what gives us eternal life. And it's just a beautiful thing. And I love it that um, when Jesus was with his disciples, everything he did had symbolic and prophetic meaning. And when he was with his disciples, when you read the account in the scripture, it tells us he took unleavened bread, which would have been like matzah, exactly the kind of bread that they ate through Passover. And it said he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't like you know, some beautiful painting that we see. He was beaten, scripture tells us, beyond recognition as a man. And his body was broken, and he allowed his body to be broken for one reason, love. Love for you and love for me. And so when we participate in the communion, Scripture tells us we're proclaiming his death and resurrection until the day he comes again. What an exciting thing it is. And so as we participate together in the bread and the fruit of the vine, for us it's grape juice, it's fruit of the vine, uh, we're going to do it as a remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me, of all that he's done. Father, I pray that you would bless each one of us as we participate in this communion, that it would speak to us, encourage us, and help us to understand and recognize all that you have done, all that you're doing, and all that you will do for each one of us personally, as well as humanity in general. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So if I could have my brothers come forward.
Because he died, we live. Because he took our sin upon him, himself, we're forgiven. And he gave us this as a reminder and an encouragement of all that he's done for us. And so therefore, take and eat and drink and be so thankful to your God, brothers and sisters. Father, thank you for this gift of communion. And I pray, Lord, that you would use it to minister to and encourage each one of us in our walk with you. And I give you thanks for all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you guys. Love you.